Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a rising junior at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the Watergate girl, which is the title of my memoir, also an MSNBC legal analyst. And I wear hashtag Jill's pins. And today I had to struggle with what pin to wear for interviewing uh, John Dean, along with uh, his partner in a pod, in a um, series of ethics programs, Jim Robineau. And I settled on a goat pin, which was a gift to me from uh, Jim Robineau's firm when John Dean and I did a program on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And it's because he was someone that the White House tried to make the scapegoat for all of Watergate. But I did debate wearing a pigeon on a stool because stool pigeon is something that is used in an unflattering way to talk about an informer, or a canary who gives an early warning, or a parrot who is someone who talks. And uh, But I ended up settling on the goat. And For nearly a month now, the January 6th committee has hosted a series of hearings aimed at educating the public and proposing legislation eventually that will prevent a recurrence of all the things that have come together to be known as the January 6th events. And it's not just the violence of January 6th, but it's all of the other parts of a conspiracy to take down our system of justice and our electoral system. It includes the violence, but it also includes fostering a big lie to create distrust in election results and also a big ripoff, which was something that Donald Trump put in place to raise money off of the big lie. We've heard from witnesses like Bill Barr, state election officials and state election workers, and one of the most powerful witnesses, Cassidy Hutchison, who was really dramatic in painting Uh, a picture of the degree to which Donald Trump intentionally wanted armed people to go to the Capitol, to invade it, to stop the collection of the votes, to stop the counting of the votes uh, from the Electoral College. He knew, and she testified about his knowledge, of knowing that they were armed and knowing that he wanted to go with them to create this insurrection. It really raises uh, a lot of questions about comparing this committee's hearings to the Watergate hearings and shows how much worse worse this hearing is portraying the actions of the White House. And we have the perfect guests today to talk about that. Today, we bring you a very special episode with John Dean and Jim Robinault. John Dean served as White House counsel for President Richard Nixon from 1970 to 1973. During the Watergate scandal, his Senate testimony helped lead to Nixon's resignation. And ever since, John has written about Watergate, first in his New York Times bestseller, Blind Ambition, written shortly after the scandal, and then in 2014, the oddly named The Nixon Defense. He's also written 14 other books, including the national bestsellers, Worse Than Watergate, Conservatives Without Conscience, and Broken Government. Currently, John is a columnist, commentator for CNN, and leads a continuing legal education program about attorney ethics with our other guest, Jim Robinault. John and I have known each other since 1973, 
but until recently, he was just a witness. And when I say that, I mean he was an incredible one, but he was only someone who would provide answers to important evidentiary questions during the Watergate investigation and trial. Starting about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we uh, worked together on a number of panels, appeared together on a number of panels, and I now consider John a friend as well as someone who I respected at the time. So I'm very excited to have him with us on today's podcast. I am equally as excited to welcome another friend, Jim Robinall, on this podcast. He partners with John on a series of um, CLE, Continuing Legal Education Programs, about the ethics of Watergate and what we learned about the ethics of lawyers in that case. Um, he is a practicing lawyer. He is also an author. He is a partner at Thompson Hine in Ohio, and he's published a number of really well-written books, including The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage During the Great War, January 1973, which is about Watergate, Roe versus Wade, the Vietnam War, and the month that changed America forever. He also wrote Ballads and Bullets, Black Power, Politics, and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. All are well-written and fascinating, and we'll include their names along with John's books in the show notes. Jim is also a regular writer of opinion pieces for places like the Washington Post and NBC Think. He's someone you should follow. We are honored to have both of them with us today. It is an honor to have John Dean and Jim Robinall with us today. Thank you both for taking the time to be with thank us. Thank you. I'll let Jim thank on both our behalves. <laughs> you can speak for yourself. I know that for sure. <laughs> that is true. And we are both excited to have you. And um, I know especially young people are excited to hear what both of you have to say. Um, Jill was recently in Washington, D.C. for the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And um, we don't want to get into all of the history of Watergate, but briefly, um, I'm curious, John, both given your role during Watergate and Jim, your extensive studying of Watergate, if each of you could briefly explain um, what you do and kind of how it relates to January 6th. Jim, go first. Okay, so uh, John and I met in... 2004 here in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I am. And at the time, Dick Cheney and John Edwards were doing a vice presidential debate. And I invited John to come because he was a not only a, somebody who knew about the presidency, but he had written about Warren Harding, who was our last Ohio president. So when he came here, we met. Um, I ended up working on a book called The Harding Affair after that. And then some years later, I went to a continuing legal education program on Kent State, and um, I, I called John that night and said, this is a great program. What were you doing that day of the Kent State shootings? And he said, you know, that um, he actually was with J. Edgar Hoover that day, and he said, why don't we do a, a continuing legal education program? So we've been doing those for the last decade now. We've done about 170 of them around the country. They're three-hour programs. They involve listening to tapes, and it's really, it's a great experience. It's a lot of fun. And what I found from all of that is that John got into the middle of the problem, um, got over the line into illegality of cover-up, 
without even realizing it. And then at some point, bingo, the light goes on. He knows he's on the other side of the line. He begins to do other things that are to try and keep the cover-up going. And then eventually he meets with Nixon on March 21, 1973, and he says, Mr. President, you know, there's a cancer growing on your presidency. And he's trying to get him to stop the cover-up to save the presidency. And he tries every which way he can, and Nixon will not stop the cover-up. So John then eventually decides this is not sustainable, and he breaks with the White House. Like Cassidy Hutchinson, he is the youngest person in the room who comes forward. And so imagine this 34-year-old White House counsel, and he's coming forward saying, I'm going to try and blow up this cover-up. And he knows, as he said many times, it's going to blow him up in the process. So that links directly to what, I mean, just today, Pat Cipollone came and was interviewed by the committee, White House counsel. It's the same office. It's the same issues of attorney-client privilege and executive privilege and so forth. At the end of the day, John just did what was right and was willing to suffer the consequences for it. So his background is quite interesting, given what we're going through right now. So if I could ask John, um, so you testified in front of the Senate committee and directly tied Nixon to Watergate's crime. Do you regret doing so? And did you fully understand the consequences that would follow? Uh, Not at all is the short answer to your question. I've got to back up just a little bit and give you context. The Senate Watergate Committee is not the first time I testify. When I break rank, I go to the U.S. Attorney's Office to see. uh, I'm talking with a lawyer. I'm telling my colleagues at the White House that I'm dealing with an outside lawyer to advise us on criminal matters and advise me in principle. And I'm happy to share, as I did, what I was learning, that we were in a whole heap of trouble. They didn't want to hear it. Uh, I had no reason to doubt my lawyer's analysis, which historically, I can say, proved right on. But uh, I initially tried to work with the U.S. attorneys uh, to see if how they were addressing the case. At one time, there was even thought that this whole thing could be unraveled, uh, Watergate being the whole thing, the whole ball of wax, uh, at a grand jury level, and the public could never learn about it. And that's one of the things I began worrying about. I've worried about that since uh, with the Trump administration. If indeed a lot of this couldn't have been done if, uh, with regard to the insurrection before the grand jury. None of us really know what's happening in these 800 cases. We're not in court. We're not seeing them unfold. Uh, so yeah. I had a very early reaction that if, they, if we went that route, if everything was handled in front of a grand jury, the public wouldn't have a clue. Uh, I also realized very quickly that the three assistant U.S. attorneys handling the case really couldn't take the case to where it needed to go. And, and that was evident very quickly. My lawyer was a very savvy lawyer. He said, we'll begin with the uh, assistant U.S. attorneys just a little bit at a time to see how they react. Uh, but bef- long before I went to the Senate uh, to testify, I had also found it necessary to blow up the core reason the Nixon White House was involved in the cover-up, and that is that they had authorized a prior break-in at Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, Daniel Ellsberg being the person who had leaked the 
so-called Pentagon Papers, which was a study of the origins of the war in Vietnam. And after he did that, Nixon uh, was held, later dubbed the Plumbers Unit, to hunt down leaks, bent to prosecute him publicly and, and, and uh, through the Department of Justice, creating a, a unit within the White House. But the Plumbers were a pretty ruthless group and had left a trail that uh, was worth covering up for the White House. It was really, in fact, when Watergate happened because the same people were involved in the Watergate break-in who had been involved in the Ellsberg break-in, uh, we didn't even know everything they had or had not done at that point. But anyway, because my attorney, a former assistant U.S. attorney from the Southern District, uh, was very savvy, he said, John, there's probably an ongoing obstruction of justice going on by the White House with the Ellsberg case. Ellsberg had been indicted. Uh, the government had not turned over all of the information they had as they're required by uh, law to do, as Jill can address. Uh, and uh, Charlie, my attorney, said, you've got to tell these prosecutors, the assistant U.S. attorneys, enough of what was going on. I said, well, Charlie, here's the problem. I don't know what is classified and what is not classified. So I gave that information to them in a way that was fairly obtuse that I could say I'm not revealing any classified information, but I could also send them directly to the information. I did that by saying when I had been in Henry Peterson's office, I'd seen pictures that had been sent to Henry, the head of the criminal division, uh, by the CIA that indicated misbehavior. And I let them go from there. Uh, and they did uh, figure out what had happened very quickly. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an amazing picture of Gordon Liddy standing in the parking slot of the doctor's office they'd later break into with a, with a uh, license tags around him. And clearly in California, it wasn't hard to discern where it happened. Anyway, I gave enough information that Charlie was sure that we weren't obstructing justice by withholding information we knew the government hadn't turned over in the Ellsberg case. That and other behavior will result in the Ellsberg case being uh, dismissed, and he will walk, uh, which was an appropriate resolution of that. Anyway, that happens long before I even get to the Senate. I, meanwhile, start dealing with Sam Dash, the chief counsel, of the committee. My lawyer uh, decided very early on how he thought we should handle the case. I went to him on the basis of looking for how best to plea, to admit I had made mistakes, that I'd gotten involved in the cover-up, and uh, I wanted to fashion a fair plea deal. I knew my colleagues would also like to blame me for everything, so it was a delicate uh, situation, how how I did that, and I had no idea what they were going to do. But I knew I was prepared to account for my behavior because I really didn't want to live under uh, what I thought was, was a, a bad situation and perpetuating a lie in any fashion. So anyway, Charlie, Charlie says, well, John, you came to the wrong lawyer. I don't work with you, uh, and then I'll make my recommendation of what you should do. Anyway, uh, Charlie Schaffer, uh, who uh, is advising me, said, 
that, uh, you know, I'll tell you after I understand your case and the facts and what have you, what I recommend, but I'm not going to do a plea deal. So we start on that basis and I retain him. And uh, the first thing he does is take me into the prosecutor's office. So as I alluded to, I have dealings with them and we very quickly realize they're not going to be able to handle this case. But we, as we depart, we depart making sure we're not obstructing justice with the uh, original case or with the prosecutors for failing to report the uh, Ellsberg break-in, which uh, will result in resolving that case for Dan Ellsberg very favorably. Uh, meanwhile, I started, I had known the chief counsel of the uh, Senate Watergate Committee well before he was appointed, years before he was appointed to be counsel to that committee. Um, and uh, we had, so we had an instant rapport and Charlie went to him and he said, uh, I've, uh, I'd been to the prosecutors and in talking to the prosecutors, I had what's called equitable immunity. That is just a commitment by the prosecutors that they won't prosecute me for anything I've told them. Charlie has stipulated in talking to them that they can't even write down what I'm reporting to them, that they're, they're just on a shopping trip to see if they're interested in, in acquiring what uh, he's showing them. And so <laughs> uh, Charlie is a very colorful character, and uh, uh, I haven't seen any of the dramatic renditions, uh, but he would certainly be the character I would most enjoy watching be portrayed. Um, <laughs> Sam Dash a professor of, of uh, criminal law at Georgetown immediately uh, saw what Charlie was doing. Charlie was thought I should be a witness rather than a defendant, that I had been taking orders from my superiors and carrying them out, and he felt that I should be immunized uh, and made a strong case. Uh, he had made that case to the prosecutors. They weren't interested. Um, and I was, I was actually kind of disappointed in the way the prosecutors handled it. Only, only one of the three really got it, uh, what we were doing and where it could likely go. And that was Seymour Glanzer. Uh, Earl Silbert was politically ambitious, wanted to be the U.S. attorney someday, and was walking on eggshells, didn't really know what he was going to do, how he was going to handle it, uh, and uh, was somewhat overwhelmed by it. Uh, Earl wouldn't tell you that today. I can tell you because I knew Earl that he was overwhelmed by it. Um, he had been in the Department of Justice when I was there. So... Uh, we're deep, deep in the woods. I got to get us back out. But it might be an interesting story, Jill. I don't think you've ever heard this whole story of how uh, Charlie, when he goes to Sam Dash, said he said, "My man isn't coming to the Senate unless he's immunized. Uh, so you better get that together." And and uh, Sam Dash's reaction is, "Well, I can't immunize him if I have no idea what he's is capable of testifying to." So we spent probably six weeks in in secret sessions uh, when they would we would meet in the evening in Charlie's office. We'd meet around town, uh, met occasionally at my house, uh, so Sam could get a good grip on 
the scope of my testimony. Uh, I had written no testimony at that time. I'd prepared no testimony, hadn't committed anything. And so it was, I was, it was at this time I was just starting to assemble my thoughts and realize that all my files were still at the White House. So it was going to be a rough road to reconstruct. Um, and in going over it with Sam, I, I primarily used a, a collection of headlines and key stories from the Washington Post that had been assembled by the re-election committee and passed around to key aides about the coverage of Watergate, the Woodward and Bernstein uh, coverage. So uh, it's, it's not too deep into the story. Sam realizes that I'm his key witness. And uh, he said, he said, you can't believe the problems I'm having with Howard Baker. Now, Howard Baker, senator from Tennessee, will historically be viewed, and it just kind of amazes me to this day, that as we look back on Watergate, everybody thinks how fair and just and appropriate Howard Baker's actions were throughout Watergate, that he was really interested in the truth, and uh, they overlooked the back channel he had to the Nixon White House. He was doing exactly what Nixon wanted, when Nixon wanted it, working with the White House throughout, which meant largely undercutting me as a witness. Uh, but I, I have to give Baker credit because he would, after trying to to protect Nixon behind closed doors, he'd come out with the chairman of the Senate committee and say, oh, we, of course, agreed to all these things and everything is hunky-dory and we're just going to get to the truth. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful display of political skills, which Howard Baker had in abundance. Uh, he was very good at this. But Sam Dash uh, found Howard Baker a headache and was deeply concerned that I wouldn't get immunity uh, because Charlie had told him that was the only way I would testify. I, as, as, as Sam Dash records in his book, I made it clear to Sam because I had a, a, a separate rapport with Sam and not to undercut my, my attorney because his point was, was good. <clears throat> but I said, Sam, I will testify with or without immunity. You can rest assured at the end of the day, I don't give a damn. I'm coming up here and testifying. If I'm immunized, fine. Uh, if I'm not, uh, uh, that's fine too. What I didn't realize and understand today is that the case that Oliver North would later have where the government has to make a choice, it either immunizes you as a witness and you are a witness and they don't prosecute you or they, uh, they get they don't give you immunity, and uh, you either do or do not testify at that point. Um, Oliver, we had Oliver North's case in spades uh, because I had been informally immunized by the original prosecutors, uh, of which they tried to reconstruct some of that information later in docu remarkable documents that... Uh, uh, one of the trial attorney for uh, the, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force uh, 
almost uh, had conniptions over some of these memos they wrote, including uh, Earl Silbert's private diary that he was keeping, uh, material that was could have could have caused a lot of problems, which didn't uh, because it was handled appropriately at the time. Anyway, there's a big backstory before I get to the Senate. I go to the Senate and I am immunized uh, unanimously uh, in the final vote, but straight party line uh, Baker uh, and and his uh, supporters uh, trying to block it initially, but then, as I say, it's unanimous by the time it becomes public. Uh, but I, as Sam knew, I was coming up there with or without immunity. That's what, this is the problem if we get too deep into these, uh, these um, sublines. I will, I can. So, well, let me just ask you some questions based on some of the things you've said that are tidbits that are fascinating to me and I think maybe to our audience too. You mentioned Henry Peterson and seeing documents in his office. And um, first of all, everybody should know that Henry Peterson was at the time the head of the criminal division at the Department of Justice. He was the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. He had been my boss at the organized crime section, so I knew him personally. And one of my deepest disappointments of Watergate was not only finding out that the president was a crook, but that finding out that Henry Peterson had given information to the White House that he never should have um, and was basically cooperating. Henry um, was actually with the White Jill, House, so. guiding me. Everyone thinks I was talking to Pat Gray. Right. It's not Pat Gray I'm talking to. I'm talking to Henry, right. who I used to lunch with quite regularly when I was at the department. We had a, a nice friendship, and uh, he was actually uh, somewhat annoyed that the FBI was taking the case towards the White House. Uh, he had been there, not at the top of the department or, or the uh, uh, criminal division during the Bobby Baker case, but he had told me at length yeah. how they, that they had artfully kept Lyndon Johnson uh, from any problems with the Bobby Baker investigation. So anyway, that's a, so that's a footnote. Right. No, I mean, it, it is... It's, it, it's a footnote, but it's important when we look at what's happening today in terms of the Department of Justice and what happened in the Trump administration with the department, because the rules changed as a result of that. The rules about who at the White House could talk to the Department of Justice changed. And it's important to understand that as we look at the events the of January 6th, don't The rules changed, but the rules were never codified or never became law. It's okay. an informal understanding between the two institutions that Trump would breach at the inception of his presidency. Right. Well, but in my opinion, Trump would breach any rule that was written or codified, so it wouldn't have mattered. That's but one of the reasons I find it difficult to think that uh, Rosen and Donahue did the right things. They sat on the information for months that, that, that uh, what was going on. And only belatedly, when there's a new administration and a Senate committee looking down their neck, uh, that they admit what really happened. Exactly. And so these are important questions for the Congress to now be looking at in terms of 
what rules need to be in place and how to protect democracy and the Department of Justice. And so let's look more at the January 6th committee, because I know our audience is interested in that. They've been investigating for more than a year. They've been conducting public hearings for more than a month now and may be wrapping up within, you know, by the time this uh, episode drops, they could be very near their very last hearing. Don't Um, don't believe that. I don't believe that. You think they'll keep going? They'll go into August. Yeah. Okay. I I hope so. But they have at least two scheduled uh, for next week. And so that'll be interesting. But they cannot possibly uh, shuffle away the information they're now sitting on uh, and do it in two hearings. Trust me. Trust me. So you'll be okay, on, this you, will be live and timely. Okay, <laughs> so you think there'll be more than I two do. hearings soon, or you think it'll be August before the I next, think, the third I think hearing. it'll be in, I think hearings will go into August. Okay, you heard it here, folks. Um, there's going to be more than the two that are currently planned. And um, I, I think Victor wanted to ask a question before I finish with my line of thought. But go ahead, Victor. Oh, it was just so interesting because I obviously did not grow up during Watergate. So much of my, um, I guess, knowledge about Watergate is one from someone like Jill, but from textbooks. And during, I guess, the Trump administration, there were so many comparisons between Trump and Nixon. And now with the January 6th committee between January 6th, the committee and the Watergate Senate hearings. And I'm wondering if maybe, Jim, you can talk a little bit about the difference um, between the hearings and then maybe John... Um, the presidency uh, between Nixon and Trump. Yeah, I, the the January six hearings are very scripted. They're very highly produced. Um, they've acquired a bunch of information through depositions that you'll see them play, and then they have a TV producer who's putting it all together. And these the congressmen who are doing the examination really are reading from a script and then occasionally letting a witness speak and so forth. It's really, it's very well done. And I think that's one of the reasons so many people are tuning in. It's like watching, you know, a TV series as opposed to a hearing. Back in Watergate's time, it was true hearings. Um, The, you know, witnesses were interviewed behind the scenes before they went on, but they weren't like in video depositions. And then they would come out and testify. And the Watergate hearing started in, the spring of 73 and, and went through that summer. John testified for a whole week. It was a huge event. I mean, 90 million Americans tuned in to watch him. Um, it was just a huge event uh, for him to testify. The rest of it was somewhat prosaic. Um, it was really his testimony that really threw the thing into high gear. But people weren't sure who to believe. And they didn't know whether or not uh, they should believe John Dean or the president. Fortunately, John put some testimony in his uh, little a little piece in his testimony that essentially said that um, he thought he might have been taped by the president in one meeting that he had with him. And as it, as it turns out, Alexander Butterfield was asked, was John Dean telling the truth when he said that? And Butterfield said, I, I hate to say this, but Nixon taped everything. And so that then really set it into high gear. But it was John's word against the president until those tapes were turned over. And then eventually the Supreme Court ordered a bunch of other tapes turned over in the summer of 74. So 
it took a much longer time. It developed over a much longer period of time. Nixon really started to lose his support with the Saturday Night Massacre that Jill knows all about. That's when things really materially changed for him. But it wasn't until the summer that the tapes came out fully, and then two weeks later, Nixon resigned. So we're in a different world in terms of what these hearings look like and how they're playing out. And John, I think uh, Victor wanted you to sort of say what you observe of the differences between the two men as presidents. The men are very different. They're both authoritarian personalities. They are both uh, uh, sort of dominating types, but they uh, come from very different backgrounds and understandings of the presidency. Nixon had served in Congress, in the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Uh, He had been vice president for eight years under Eisenhower, who uh, was probably as good a place to ever get trained about the presidency as anyone can imagine, because Eisenhower was something of a natural-born leader and... and, uh, uh, you're not, uh, you're no f- wallflower if you run D-Day. So I, could, I suspect it was a little rougher uh, behind the scenes in Eisenhower's presidency than the smiling images we have today of that presidency. Uh, so Nixon, Nixon knew the presidency. He actually had been acting president when uh, Eisenhower was ill and had assumed the full responsibilities of the office under a a written agreement between he and Eisenhower for a brief period. So uh, he he came to the presidency knowledgeable. Trump, uh, I don't believe even today after having been president could pass a civil service examination for the most basic position. (laughs) He couldn't get a job as a mail carrier uh, if he had to be tested for it. He has, he's all instinct, uh, all uh, actions are what he thinks he knows, uh, and he, he surprisingly didn't even hire uh, the top team that he could have brought in that was willing to serve around him. Rather, he, he brought in people he thought he could dominate, and when he learned he couldn't, uh, he removed them. And as we see his presidency ending and the travesty of January 6th and his refusal to admit his defeat, uh, he's got a pretty weak staff. Uh, People with spine had left. Uh, People with knowledge had largely left. So uh, the fact that Cipollone, for example, the witness who uh, was testifying today as we record this podcast, it's remarkable that he wanted the job. He took it after a uh, halfway through the term of the presidency. Uh, he had defended the president in a rather aggressive fashion uh, during an impeachment, but yet he uh, he wanted the job. Where were we? Did that answer your question? Well, well it, it, it did. I mean, you might draw another uh, um, analogy between McGahn, who left, and what you think of uh, Pat Cipollone. Uh, we're doing the comparison of Trump and, and Nixon. Let me just finish it off. Uh, right. Okay, go ahead. I think probably the most striking difference between the two men and their presidencies is at his core, it appears that Richard Nixon had a conscience. 
Uh, he will save the country the agony of an impeachment trial when he knows he's going to lose. Uh, his staff is pretty disenchanted with him by that time, and they're not willing to really aggressively defend him as he's leaving office. Whereas Trump, uh, I can't believe that Trump would not have created multiple national world crises had he been Nixon during Watergate. For example, when the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to turn over his tapes, he turned them over. I can't envision uh, Donald Trump doing the same if he had an adverse ruling by the court. Uh, so they're very different men, and uh, I, what, what's happened is Trump's such a bad president, and his personality is so offensive to many of us uh, that he's made for a, a reassessment of Richard Nixon and his presidency. Interesting. I mean, uh, let, let, let me just add two things, because we did a program on Trump-Nixon um, that, that where we looked at this. There are two things to know about them that where they have things in common. One is they really appealed to white grievances. Uh, Nixon called it the silent majority, and he also wanted to change the Supreme Court that was doing busing and uh, integration of schools and things like that. He appealed to white grievance. Trump did the exact same thing, obviously. And the second is both of them really had it out for their enemies. Nixon had an enemies list, and he, both of them felt like they were on the outside of the society they were in, outsiders, not accepted. Um, Trump felt that way. Nixon felt that way. And both of them had this streak of wanting to get even and getting retribution against enemies. So um, it really came out in both their presidencies. And God help us, if Trump gets reelected, what would happen? under that circumstance, because that's a huge part of their personality, is hating their enemies and wanting to get even with them. Yeah, interesting if we look at what the last words that Richard Nixon spoke while he was still in the Oval Office about, uh, you only lose if you hate your enemies, um, which he clearly did. Jim um, will give you a little thumbnail yeah, on that on that farewell <laughs> speech. Uh, we have done it so yeah. many times that Jim has virtually committed it to memory. Jim, give her the lines. <laughs> yeah, it's only a beginning. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he, he, we, we really, we've listened to that many times. What's interesting, Jill, is that Nixon was, we both believe, his most candid in that speech where he's leaving the White House. Because yeah. as you say, he ultimately says, others may hate you, but they don't win unless you hate them. Right. And then, and he points to himself, then you destroy yourself. So he knew that his own tendency to hate his enemies destroyed mm -hmm. him. I mean, he knew that that, that happened. But he also said, and it's interesting, because, and this is a difference between he and Trump, he was such a scholar of the presidency he really admired Theodore Roosevelt, who had both his mother and his, and his wife die on the same day. And he went out to the Badlands and he wrote in his diary about, you know, you never know what it's like to be on the highest peak until you're in the lowest valley. He says that in that speech, too. Nixon had read that the night before and included, you know, he was reading Teddy Roosevelt the night before he left, as opposed to Trump talking with his advisors about you know, defrauding the states. Um, it really is a very different, it's a very different thing. As John was saying at the beginning, Nixon appreciated the presidency ultimately and was a scholar of it and read a lot about it. So 
that final speech has a ton embedded in it. That's when you mentioned the at. enemies list, I have to ask uh, both of you, do you think that it's coincidence that uh, two of his favorite enemies, Comey and McCabe, underwent this really severe IRS audit? Or do you think it was mm. one of the acts of Donald Trump in carrying out his enemies list? No coincidence. John can tell you when he first got involved, he was asked to start doing that sort of thing, and he didn't do it. He was asked to go start. Is that right, John? Uh, I, I, agree, I agree with It's possible there is a time delay. They're not simultaneously being investigated. There's like uh, close to a year or more between the two investigations. But I can't believe that the Trump White House did not receive what I understand is a tradition with IRS to send to the White House their sensitive case files uh, where they alert the White House to high-profile people who are under audit. And it's just sort of a routine. They don't expect any action on it. It's just to inform a a White House and a president that some high-profile person is being audited. Uh, I don't know if that was discontinued after Nixon's presidency, but they certainly were, were, those those sensitive uh, case reports were sent over to Ehrlichman, who in turn shared them with the president. Uh, and they applauded some, and they were horrified by others. Hmm. Well, let's go back to January 6th um, committee, and whether you both agree that they have done a really good job of showing Donald Trump's personal involvement in spreading the big lie, inciting the mob, in destroying the Department of Justice by trying to change the attorney general, by the fake slate of electors. They've really linked him to all of those things. And um, I'm just wondering if you agree with that and where you think the committee goes from there or what the Department of Justice does now that they have that public information. Well, my view is that... um, they've done a very good job of linking him to everything. One thing I worry a little about is a defense that he got all the way to the edge on that one meeting with Pat Cipollone and the others at the Department of Justice, and they stopped him. And so is bad intent enough? He really didn't follow through with any of that stuff, and he didn't have Clark send out that letter and so forth. But I do think the most damning thing that they put out there that links him criminally to what happened on the 6th is Cassidy Hutchinson saying he knew they were armed. He knew they were out there. He told him to take down the magnometers um, and let let his people in, knowing they were armed. He then juiced them up and and said, we're going to go fight at the Capitol. Uh, And then the the really stunning testimony that he wanted to go up there himself. Now, uh, you know, whether he was fighting with the Secret Service in that car, that may not have happened. But nobody's saying that he didn't want to go. He did want to go. And putting that all together, he clearly wanted to go up there and lead a rebellion with armed people. And I really think that to me is is as strong as it gets with all the other stuff being important background information. I think that's the moment where you really have him directly involved in, you know, sedition um, against the Capitol. That's my view. I I would join that view. Uh, I think there are other crimes that were 
conspicuously committed and whether uh, the attorney general will take action on that is pretty gray at this point. But I think there's no question that uh, Trump was actively defrauding his supporters uh, in uh, creating a defense fund when there were no defenses being run out of the fund. And it was just a pretty straight fraud. But he's gotten around that now. He doesn't even pretend to be uh, collecting for any purpose other than people paying him directly to come hear him speak. Uh, tickets that run from uh, a couple hundred dollars to several thousand. Uh, I think it's $4,000 to get a personal backstage visit uh, either before or after the event. So he's got a, he's got a grift that uh, uh, there were certainly uh, evidence of improper ones prior, but he's just doing it directly now that he's out of the office. So uh, will he be will he be criminally indicted? Right now, I think it's pretty iffy. Uh, I don't think that we have a, an attorney general who is looking forward to being the first attorney general to uh, to prosecute a former president. And I'm not sure that uh, he can be convicted federally. I do, however, fully expect the district attorney of Fulton County to indict Trump on charges in Georgia. Of course, we thought the same about uh, charges at the local level I in didn't. New York, and those seem to have gone away. You no, thought that wouldn't happen? No. wasn't a strong case. Well, I, 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 I thought it was strong enough, and I, I think that doing nothing is really dangerous, dangerous for our system of Terribly justice. Terribly dangerous to do nothing. Yeah. So, Terrible precedent. And it would it will embolden so Trump at, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. But and let's look again at Cassidy Hutchison because she's been called the John Dean of this hearing. Her testimony has been described as explosive, and I'm just wondering what your um, overall impressions of her were, and comparison to yourself as a witness. Uh, and of course, unlike you, she was never a participant in anything criminal. She is a neutral fact witness who happened to, it's sort of like being uh, the witness at a bank robbery. Well, well, because believe me, if there was something, they would have come forward who, with it. Who? And so far, she's someone who would know what she did, don't no. you think? Mark Meadows gonna come forward with it if it implicates him? Well, that's an interesting thought. I'll have to think about that. Um, maybe she is a participant. I don't know. Though, so that would make her even more more like the, you. Yeah. The one, you know, for example, we're working on the assumption, and I certainly give him the benefit of the doubt uh, with uh, Pat Cipollone, that he's not a participant in any of this, that he saw the problem, uh, waved the red flags and said, don't do it. But I don't see any evidence yet uh, that indeed... Uh, he uh, did not get involved and entangled in any of the many conspiracies that went on. Uh, I'll be very, I'll be fascinated to see. It's so easy to cross the line, Jill. I'm one who can tell you uh, that before you even know it, uh, you're on the wrong side of the law. And, you know, I, I uh, hope Pat Cipollone uh, did not cross the line, that, that he surrounded himself with sophisticated criminal lawyers who would be looking for those lines. 
And that's why they were warning uh, warning the president. But his his performance at the uh, impeachment proceeding, where he aggressively uh, politicized and attacked the institution of Congress uh, when he's theoretically defending the office of the presidency just didn't fit. Uh, so I don't know what's going on, and we I think we have a lot to learn. So I'm not making the assumptions that you're making uh, yet. I hope we can make them. And, well, I haven't made any assumptions about him, but I, I uh, and actually, Jim, this might be the time to ask you about, you just wrote something about the ethics involved here right. and what Pat Cipollone should do, should have done. Should he have reported this once he knew about it? Should he have done something to more than say, don't do this, or going to Cassidy Hutchison to say, yeah. make sure that this doesn't happen, yeah. as opposed to trying something else? I, I, my view is, and we've been teaching this for 10 years now, my view is that um, once he understood that there was crime going on by the president, and fraud, both, you know, the fraud on the big lie and the crime that of attacking the, the Capitol and then sitting in his dining room watching it happen. Once that's going on, I think that as a lawyer, he should have tried to stop it. And then if he can't, if he could not stop it, then I think he had the obligation and the ability uh, to report out. And he should have at the time when it was ongoing. This was a threat to the country, and he should have reported to Congress about what was going on. Um, I think that's what the ethics rules allow him to do. They don't require him to do it, but they allow him to do it. Um, and by not reporting it, he's got a real problem of whether or not he's involved in a cover-up because he's not reporting it um, for, you know, all this period of time. I also think that he's not able to hide behind either the attorney-client privilege or the um, duty of confidentiality or executive privilege where his superior, his client, the person running his client, the office of the White House, uh, is engaged in crime, ongoing crime or fraud. That's what the Watergate reforms to ethics were all about so that attorneys could do something like this. Mm -hmm. And what's really, what's really ironic is I had a big case with Pat in 2004 um, which incidentally was the same year I met John. And then seven years later, we started doing the Watergate CLE on all these ethics rules in White House counsel. I invited Pat to come. Um, I'm not sure if he did or not, but if he did, he would have known that he had obligations. And one of the things John and I've talked about for two months now is that every lawyer takes an oath. To, in, it's one of the few things they say in the oath. You know, I so-and-so hereby agree to protect the Constitution of the United States. It's our oath as lawyers to do so. And he's violating that oath if he's letting this all go on and doesn't say anything. So I, I think back at the time he should have talked about it. I think hopefully today he was very limited in, in what he was claiming executive privilege or, or duty of confidentiality or attorney-client privilege on. Uh, I think none of it applies, frankly, because I think Trump was in the middle of a crime spree. Um, he, you know, And he should have stood up at the time, and he should talk about what happened today. Then you'd have your John Dean, because Cassidy Hutchinson doesn't talk directly with Trump. Pat does, and, and he knows, and he really, he really should be coming forward. So 
That's so my we're gonna, spiel. We'll, we'll put a link to your article for MSNBC or NBC Think um, yeah. in the show notes so everyone can read it. But John, what would you have advised Cassidy before she testified? Um, and maybe what would you say to those who have not testified yet, some who have refused to cooperate? Do you have any advice you want for them? on the record or off the record for me? <laughs> I, I, want, <laughs> I want off the record, of course. <laughs> no, since we're recording, it's hard to get off the recording. <laughs> <laughs> you should know, John, I, yes, you should I, know I, better. I, I was going to say, as accustomed as I am to being recorded, too. Uh, <laughs> At least you know you're being recorded this time. I think Cassidy was a great witness she did the right things at the right time. Uh, she apparently had four sessions with the committee, and each session she got a little bit more open, although none of the sessions contradict each other uh, from, the, from the, what the public statements of several of the members of the committee are that she uh, became and uh, more open and volunteered more information and recalled things mm -hmm. and then was most open after she changed lawyers from a Trump defense fund f uh, retained lawyer to her own choice of a lawyer and, uh, and, and a very competent, experienced, although very uh, Trump-oriented in many regards, lawyer who was doing the right thing by his client uh, got her up there where she opened the doors all the way. So I think, I, I, I can't think she'd, you know, I, I think she'd, she was a good witness. She was an, uh, a truthful witness uh, from everything I can tell. Apparently, uh, Cipollone today did not uh, have anything other than confirmation of her testimony. And that is so important. As we know, corroboration is the key in any criminal prosecution. She's also been severely attacked by Trump. Did you have that kind of attack from uh, oh, Nixon? Oh, no, no, no. Nixon sent me Valentine cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jill, Jill, you're, the one thing I've often asked John is, you know, did he ever interact with Nixon afterwards? The answer yeah. is no. But he did run into Bob Haldeman one time. Yeah, in a in a in, in Ehrlichman both, and you know those guys had severely. You, it's all in the tapes. Those guys were going to make him the scapegoat. They went after him. Nixon went after him. Nixon had uh, national speeches where he blamed one of the John for everything. One of the right. conversations so, Nixon has with Al Haig after Haig becomes his chief of staff, uh, which I did not put in. The Nixon defense is is Nixon instructing Haig of one of his top jobs is to destroy me, that that he has been tasked with that. However, uh, he has to do it. And Haig actually does stuff. He leaks stuff in advance of my testimony before the Senate about remote issues, classified stuff I had no knowledge of. Uh, about foreign affairs that I was theoretically going to testify about. Uh, Newsweek had it. Time was leaked. I learned from the reporters later that it had come from Haig, who gave him up, uh, who said, 
we're trying to get the answers to this stuff. Do you know about this? And I said, I have no idea. But that was just part of a broader scheme where Haig was trying to get me to uh, somehow corrupt me through uh, these, these leaks he was putting out. And was he putting out negative information? They were not Valentine cards. <laughs> no, they weren't. And, and the reason that I'm wearing the Jill's pin that I'm wearing today is because it's a goat because yeah. they did try to make you the scapegoat. And um, they didn't succeed, but they certainly tried. Uh, the pin was a gift from Jim's firm after you and I did the program for them on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And it's a beautiful pin. Well, one other thing I wanna mention before turning this over to Victor is something you mentioned, John, which is that you didn't have your White House files. Uh, unlike Haldeman and Ehrlichman, who resigned and left with whatever they wanted to, you were escorted out. You were fired. And no, I wasn't. I really wasn't. I wasn't in town when it happened. But but you weren't allowed to take anything out of the no, White House after that. I anticipated. I had taken a number of documents that I thought were of unique interest. The, ah. U, the Houston plan, for example, which I we we put in a safe deposit vault. Uh, and gave the key yeah. to Judge Sirica, a document which still, even to this day, has not been fully declassified. But it was a clear evidence. Wow. The reason I took the document is I didn't believe anybody would think that Richard Nixon would shred the Constitution as easily as he had in the Houston plan, where they remove all the... Do you want to talk about what the Houston the, plan is, The Houston is, plan was a named after a White House staffer by the name of Tom Houston, who was told by the president to bring in all of the domestic and foreign uh, intelligence agencies that he wanted much better intelligence on the anti-war efforts to, uh, regarding Vietnam, the people who were upset with the war. Uh, that he didn't, th he thought it was being paid for a lot of it by the communists, and he wanted to establish that as a hard fact. Uh, it never was established as a hard fact because apparently it wasn't a hard fact. Uh, but Nixon, nevertheless, was prepared to bend the law uh, to give the, just remove all restraints on domestic intelligence gathering, uh, wiretaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, mail covers where they open mail, uh, infiltration on, on the campuses and into groups and organizations. Anyway, it was, it was, it was approved. It, first of all, it was assembled by all of the key intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, NSA, uh, defense intelligence agencies, all of the, uh, agencies were, were willing to do it, except J. Edgar Hoover at the last minute after letting his staff develop it, said, no, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, Houston accused him of wanting to leave office on a high horse when he, most of these concepts had come from his earlier uh, operations in running the FBI. So, the plan was approved by Nixon and then never implemented. When I arrived there in July, one of my first assignments is uh, I'm given this document. To, to even get the document, my secretary and I 
had to have a special briefing by the CIA because the classification on the Houston plan is classified, even the classification itself. Mm. Uh, you've been in the Pentagon. You know they can put some yeah. some fancy classifications on on material they want to bury. So anyway, it, I, yeah. I, when we were coming to the end of the road, and it was pretty clear to me that I was being set up by my by my former superiors uh, or soon to be former superiors, I thought amongst other things I should keep in my possession because no one would believe Nixon would do what's in this document uh, where he approves the the Houston plan to remove all restraints on intelligence gathering. And given the classification on it, Charlie wouldn't even read it wisely, but we decide that the thing to do is to put it in a safety deposit box and then give the key to Judge Sirica, who has been handling all of the Watergate cases at that point. Uh, and that's what we did. The, it will later be turned over by Judge Sirica to the Senate Watergate Committee, partially declassified, but to this day, it, it's not been totally de declassified. Uh, this is so unrelated, but this kind of relates back to Cassie Hutchinson's testimony in a sense. Um, she had revealed that Trump, um, like Ketchup, and we were talking about the similarities and differences between Nixon <laughs> and Trump. And it reminded me of this one fact that I read online that said apparently Nixon used to eat, eat uh, cottage cheese and ketchup yes. for breakfast. Um, <laughs> but the difference between him and was, Trump is that he never was, splattered was, ketchup <laughs> on the White House wall. It walls. was lunch, Victor. Uh, I, I, tw yeah. I tweeted yeah. this yeah. at some stage uh, that uh, they both were ketchup users. One on one on yeah. cottage cheese, <laughs> one on burgers. Yeah. He had a pine yes. he had a pineapple with it too. There's a picture yes. of his last lunch yeah. in the White House. Yeah. But but Victor, there is one instance where uh, Nixon reportedly threw an ashtray across the room. And that was the morning that he found out he was down in Miami at his place down in Miami, Florida. Mm. Um, and he was told, uh, according to Chuck reports, Olson. That he, he picked up an at Yeah, Chuck Olson. He picked up a ashtray and threw it across the room. So he, he kind of had that temper too. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that I'm most concerned about is that not enough people, especially young people, um, are tuning into the January 6th hearings. And it was just so stark to me because um, the number of young people who tuned into the Johnny Depp Amber Heard hearings was through the roof. But the number of people who actually turn in, tune into the January 6th hearings, um, I don't know how many are. Um, and I'm wondering, Jim, first, can you make a comparison between now and Watergate um, in terms of the number of people who tune, who are tuning in and tune in back then? Yeah. Well, uh, as I said, when John testified, the, when we talk about Watergate, we say in history of television, there are like huge moments, the moon landing, the Kennedy assassination, John Dean's testimony, 9-11. It's right mm -hmm. up there in terms of where everybody in the country is watching the same thing. But um, I will tell you, to your point, it's, I feel very strongly about this. Young people need to not only watch the January 6th, they need to vote. And, yeah. you know, from the time back during Watergate days when the voting age went from 21 down to 18, because if you're 18 and you can be drafted, you should be able to vote. Even from that time, young people weren't voting in, in as big a numbers as they should have. It's declined over time. 
but it's it is really a problem. And the real problem is today, if younger people don't vote, they're going to reap what the older generation has sown. And what we've sown is real disarray right now in terms of you know what the Supreme Court looks like and our politics and so forth. Younger people have to vote. They have to get involved and understand they got to change things. And that's um, really important that they do that. So, but it's it's always been the case that younger people didn't vote as much as they should. But man, today if if you can light a fire, Victor, God bless you. It's I might time add, to do it. I couldn't agree Let with you more. Let me footnote Jim's observation that I actually have some signs, Victor, that uh, young people have gotten interested because of Cassie Hutchinson's mm. testimony. That uh, I can speak both personally from family. Uh, to questions and inquiries I'm getting, that there is a, a new interest by a younger generation. I think there's a new interest also because she's young herself. She's yeah. she's very, yeah. and I think we a lot of my generation, we like to see that, you know, young people taking to the, you know, using the courage they have and, and speaking truth to power. And John, I'm this is this next question is for you. So you directly felt the impact of testifying and saw how it changed public opinion. How likely do you think that these hearings will shift public opinion? There is a direct relationship to the number of people who are tuning in and the, the stories that are breaking. I think that the January 6th committee, which is often incorrectly called a commission, uh, is doing a remarkable job of attracting attention that people are seeing this story differently as a result of these public hearings. And I think, uh, I, I think they're going to go on a little longer than was anticipated, that they'll probably run into August because they have so much material and so many people have come forward as a result of the new revelations that uh, they don't want to turn the faucet off, but rather they want to keep informing people since they have things that they didn't even know or they have things that they did know but didn't know how they could ever present them. And now they have a way to do that. Yeah, and Victor, I think that Roe, Dobbs, guns, and January 6th are changing things. If you look at Ohio today, the guy who's running, the Democrat, Tim Ryan, who's running, is nine, almost 10 points above J.D. Vance. You look in Pennsylvania, Fetterman is nine, 10 points above Dr. Oz. And if you look down in Georgia, Warwick, is that his name? No, Warnock. Warnock, Warnock. is 10 points ahead of Herschel Walker. So those are three really big races. And I think those, those leads have widened in large part because of Roe, in my view, but also January 6th is having an impact and guns are having an impact. And, and hopefully, and the other thing is people listen to podcasts today. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So you guys can have an outsized influence on younger people. This podcast in particular can. So it's really important. Um, I did a thing for Slow Burn for Slate. And my nieces and nephews have never read one of my books that I've written. I've had three of them call me and say, I heard you on Slow Burn today. I didn't know you did this stuff. <laughs> well, so, it's um, good. Anything it's, we it's can important. do. Yes, it's important. yes, definitely. So we want to wrap up the conversation on January 6th just by asking both of you, um, what more do you think the committee should be doing and um, what are you going to be looking forward to or um, looking for in the weeks to come? Go, Jim. Um, I think they can't, well, 
I, I agree with John. I think there's a lot more to come out. And I think they just got to keep it up. I mean, I think they've got some great momentum. They're they're putting out a great, you know, it's almost become, you think about our our viewing habits. People from the from the time of, of COVID are used to tuning in and watching, you know, a program. And this is kind of what they've become is a, a program that people want to watch. Like they want to see what's going to happen in the next episode. Yeah. So I think they need to make it a lot like that and keep it going for a while. I agree with John. It's definitely going into August. It may go into September. Um, they got to be careful, but not, not overstaying their welcome, but they got enough stuff to keep people interested and they're doing such a good job of it. And I hope that, um, they can get, you know, some of the people, I mean, there's still a lot of people that could come forward. I heard today, Steve Bannon is maybe making a deal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the chips are falling because as people are seeing all this stuff happening, I think people are starting to come in a little bit. So my hope is that they could get some big people to come in, even like a Mark Meadows who does a deal and shows up. I mean, I think it's time for I all of them Mark to come Meadows, in. Mark and, Meadows and is talk. a target. You agree, Joe? Yeah, Which but he could get immunity. Yeah, I do. But he could get immunity, I, John. I would. I, yes, he could uh, from the committee. That was the fight that Archibald Cox, for example, did not want me testifying. He tried to block my immunity. There wasn't much he could do under the statute, uh, but he tried. Uh, tried administratively through justice and then uh, toyed with going to court. And we said, come on, we'll... we'll uh, will trust the law, but he also didn't want my testimony televised. And I, th I said to Sam Dash at the time, I said, Sam, one of the reasons I'm coming forward is to help educate people because nobody knows what's going on. They hear the word Watergate, they don't have a clue what it is. I think it's a bungled burglary and it's a whole array of illicit, improper abuses of power by Nixon. And that's what the hearings did accomplish, uh, particularly my testimony was able to focus on the fact that Watergate was more than the name uh, that had uh, arisen as a result of the scandal. Same is true with January 6th. Much more is now being portrayed than just the insurrection. There are, there's clearly uh, an effort to overturn the election that culminated in an attempted insurrection, but it's the the preceding conduct is also improper and dangerous. So uh, hopefully I'm one to get back to the basic question of what else they can do, is I think, as I said earlier, just keep going and give us more, get more evidence out, and then put a bow on it with a report that will uh, show that because these were not vivid cross-examinations of witnesses in the uh, public sessions, I'm sure behind closed doors we'll see those transcripts that these witnesses have been vetted well before they arrived at the witness table. Yeah. Yep. I, I hope you're right that the report ties it all together. And that almost sounds like it would be a great place to stop, but I want to end on a lighter note. So I want to talk about... Um, your excellent CNN special, but also the show Gaslit, which features <laughs> Martha Mitchell as the hero of Watergate, played by Julia Roberts, and Sean Penn playing your former boss, John Mitchell. Dan Stevens plays you, and Betty Gilpin plays your wife, Maureen, known to everyone around the world as Mo. Um, and 
So first, did you and Mo both watch Gaslight I've not John? watched any of it. Uh, I can't speak for Mo whether she has watched... I know she's watched one or two episodes uh, that she kind of gasped and asked me, how can they just make up stuff about your life that never happened and portray it as your life? And I said they can do it because we have a very uh, mishmashed uh, use of public figures in our defamation law. <laughs> it's less than desirable, but I don't want conservative justices rewriting it. Yeah. Well, um, I, I would love to know what Mo thought, if, if you can speak for her on that, about her portrayal, because in many ways, she is actually the hero of the story, the way she's portrayed. Yeah, I, I, and so if she hasn't watched the whole yeah, thing, she, she should. should. <laughs> I, 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 we've been told that, that she is, uh, she, and she roars when she hears that she is the brains behind uh, how I would handle things. Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, of course, that's the way it was, dear. <laughs> what a good husband. That's why you're married yeah. over 50 years. I know it for sure. Joe, Joe, when I watched the first few episodes, I wrote Mo and I said, they're really doing a hatchet job on John. It's not him at all. But that you are looking, you know, you, you come off as someone who was very important in this story. And to, to a certain extent, she really was because um, she was such a support for John during that time. And I can tell you, having been on the road with them for a decade, that there's not, you know, a moment that goes by that they're not communicating with each other. That they really, to this day, 50 years later, still communicate about everything. And she is his closest advisor um, on everything. And he implicitly trusts her judgment about things. So it's it's a really nice partnership. And it started back then during during that time. And so that part of it is very true. They really do have a great yeah. Uh, relationship. Well, I, I know when I first watched it, I, and I did talk to Jim about this, John, was I was angry at your portrayal. I mean, it was like, who is that person? It's not the person that I saw at, you know, contemporaneously or the person that I now know. And so I was outraged. But I did, I, I thought, well, okay, they might be doing that to John, but they're, they're being nice to Mo, so I'm, I'm happy for that. But I'm I'm sorry it wasn't accurate, and I'm glad that you had your chance with the CNN special to portray a much more accurate version of events uh, and to let people know from your point of How view. How about a totally accurate version? Okay, totally accurate. Okay. <laughs> I didn't find any errors in it, and the only error that I know you made in your testimony, and it's to me it's amazing because you really have— a phenomenal memory. I mean, it's yeah. quite amazing. Is that you said something happened at the Mayflower Hotel that actually happened at the Mayflower Coffee Shop of a different hotel. Oh. I mean, that is pretty insignificant, I would say. <laughs> and you were 100% accurate. And of course, we bet the whole game on your accuracy. And when we subpoenaed the tapes, we knew that it would either prove you completely accurate or it would destroy your your testimony and really destroy our case but the tapes really showed that when you said to the senate and you did not know for everybody who's listening you did not know that you were being taped 
that there was a White House taping system when you testified. You testified honestly and openly, but didn't know that there ever could be corroboration or total destruction of your testimony by tapes. Um, it turned out everything you said was correct. And the first tape that the prosecutors listened to was the March 21st tape, because that was very dramatic how you described, I went to the president, I told him that there was a cancer growing on the presidency. And sure enough, when we played it, that's exactly what was on that tape, as was everything else that you said. So well, thank you for that. Thank you for your great there, memory. There is, there is a great story, Jill, that we tell our audiences of them finding out their tapes through Alexander Butterfield, like on Friday, July 13th. Mm -hmm. And Sam Dash, who John described earlier, called John, who was in the Witness Protection Program in Florida, and said, come back, we need you in Washington. And he flew back, he, they didn't tell him why. And he was sitting in his house in Old Town, John, is that where it was? Yeah. Yeah, Old Town, Old Town yeah. Alexandria. Sitting, and he, he came in with another assistant, a guy Hamilton. named Jim, I can't remember, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, Jim Hamilton came in and they, 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 they came and they stood around him and said, you know, Nixon taped everything because they wanted to see his reaction in person. And uh, Jim Hamilton later reported that John, quote, broke into a wide smile. And he said, do you guys know what this means? It means my ass is not going to be out, hanging out there all alone. Um, and you'll find out that I didn't, uh, oh, I, that I under testified rather than over testified. So it's a great scene where they're really trying to figure out, would he be happy about the fact that they And the reason... Jill, for your so. background on this, and Victor, is the first reaction Sam Dash had to learning that there was a taping system from Alex Butterfield was they thought Butterfield was a plant and that he had, he had come up there and told them of a taping system because, indeed, they had one and it was going to undercut all my testimony. And that that's why they had... Mm -hmm. Uh, had cleverly uh, had Butterfield come up and concede to it so that they would walk into this trap. And this is what, why Sam thought, they, they learn on Friday the 13th of the taping system, they plan to call Butterfield on Monday the 16th, interrupt the normal parade of witnesses and put Butterfield on. So Sam calls me on the afternoon of the 13th and said, you've got to come back to Washington. I can't tell you why. And he said, I've talked to the marshals uh, in the, in the uh, they can get you back up here and I'll meet you on Sunday afternoon at your house. And that's when they come over to test to see if they have a disaster or they too should be grinning. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the reaction for us at the prosecutor's office was, let's figure out which tapes to request. We knew we had no choice but to ask for them once it was made clear. And we found out about it on Monday. We didn't know over the weekend. It was the best kept secret in Washington that something as explosive as that was revealed on Friday. And wasn't revealed publicly until Monday, and no one found out about it. No one. No reporters. Jill, let me correct, no one. Let, let, let me correct you on one thing. As Jim said it yeah. early in the pro in our taping, I did have a, an inclination I had been recorded. In fact, there's an interesting cross-examination right. where, where uh, Baker is quizzing me on why I thought I 
was recorded. And I explain how Nixon starts on on April 15th with all these right. leading questions. Uh, and then when he's not getting the answer he likes, he gives his own answer, which is unusual. Where I, For example, he, he says, do you remember that uh, conversation where I asked you how much it might cost? Mm-hmm. And you said a million dollars. And of course, you knew when I said that was no problem. I was joking, didn't you? Uh, and I said, well, I didn't know that. And then at one point, he gets up and goes across the EOB office and says in a stage whisper, I was foolish to talk to Colson about clemency for Hunt, wasn't I? And I said, Mr. President, that's probably an obstruction of justice. So, yes, I did. I did have. And that, when I look. Right. But you had an inkling. You did not know. No, I did the point not know. Is, you did but, not know about I'm, the taping system. And and you remember, John, there's also a recording where Haldeman and the president are talking about ah, John's acting really strange lately. You don't think he's taping us, do you? And one of them says, nah, he wears those tight Italian suits. We would spot a wire if he was wearing it. So, I mean, they thought the same of you. Right. I, I, and he, drive, and he, he, and he drives a right. Porsche, too. And he drives a Porsche, right, exactly. So that's one thing Gaslit got right. You did drive yeah. that famous Porsche. They got the color wrong in, in uh, Gaslit. What color yeah, was maroon. it? It was a maroon, maroon, oh maroon targa, and they've got some god awful yellow thing. I'm I'm told it is a hideous yellow. No, I, I had I had wow. I, well, that's not I the only thing they got wear, wrong. I didn't wear they Italian got suits. Wrong. I wore Brooks Brothers suits. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had that wrong too. What can I say? <laughs> Very adorable. All so, right. Victor, last question to you. Okay, well, this has been so phenomenal and so fascinating. Um, the question that we always end this podcast with is um, your advice for young people. I don't know if John wants well, to go first. As, as somebody who has John, young people ahead. in my life, granddaughters, uh, I keep encouraging them to, one, stay very aware of the news, the daily news, because you will react to it. And secondly, get involved. And fortunately, all my young people are that. They're aware of the news and they're involved. Yeah. My, my reaction is that um, young people care about this world. They care about the environment. And they care about a lot of other things that are going on in the wrong direction right now, but especially this world. The only way to save the world is to vote. Um, if the United States doesn't get its act together and start to save the environment, nothing else matters. And so I hope that there is such a concern about, among young people about the important issues that I just wish they would understand not to be cynical and say, oh, it doesn't matter, but to really say, I got to go vote. You know, it's not going to change if they stay at home and just say, I hate Joe Biden. You know, it's just not going to change. They've got to get out and vote. And the most important thing is to save the world, not just to, you know, save our political situation, our democracy, to save the world. Um, so that's my big message. That's some wonderful advice. And um, if there's anything that young people should take away, it's using, it's, I guess, taking their grief, their rage, their anger and turning it into action and purpose. And that comes through voting. So um, thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Jim, for this uh, wonderful discussion. Um, it was a pleasure to have you both on. It was nice to meet you. Thank Thank you you both. 
thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with John Dean and Jim Robinalt. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Jill and I did and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can follow us wherever you follow your podcasts and be sure to leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts as it helps us tremendously. You can also find us on YouTube, so be sure to go to Politicon's channel, subscribe to us, like the video, and click the bell for our weekly notifications. Thanks so much for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week with another episode of iGen Politics.